Good evening. Be here again with God's people in the Lord's house. And as Brother Ken mentioned, we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to turn with me there, we'll be, Lord willing, in a few moments in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 11. We've seen already... The context of chapter 11, as we've begun our study through this and what was happening, as the Hebrew Christians were beginning to get discouraged and wonder if indeed what they had put their faith in was real, if Christ was coming, or if it was all a sham. And then last time we began to look at the content of the passage. We saw that the saw the nature of faith. Back in verse 1, where the writer said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then we went on after looking at the nature of faith to begin looking at the necessity of faith. We briefly saw in verse 2 the pertinent application where the writer applies it to believing in, excuse me, where the writer applies it to men of old. And how, by faith, men of old gained approval. And then we saw, again, how we applied it to believing in creation. And that it's by faith that we even believe that God has created what is seen out of what is not seen. And tonight we want to continue what we began last time when we looked at Abel. And that's looking at the pre, what I call the pre-patriarchal examples, the men that came before the patriarchs, who we know as the patriarchs. And tonight we're going to take up our study with a man that's somewhat known, but probably not well known in Scripture, a man called Enoch. We're going to look, much as I do for most of these men as we look at them, we're going to look at his story tonight and kind of a, see what the scriptures has to, has to tell us about Enoch and who he is. We'll look at his life and we'll look at his death. And then after looking at his story, we'll look at his faith. And then God helping us, we'll look at some of the application, some of the lessons that we can learn from it. So follow along with me as I read the word of God. 11, chapter of Hebrews, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Before we begin tonight to look at Enoch and his story, let's seek again the Lord's help in prayer. Father, we ask you tonight as we do come to open up your word that you would be with us. Father, that you would clear our minds and hearts of the distractions that would hinder us and prevent us from hearing your word faithfully, from preaching it faithfully. Father, that you would forgive us for any sins that would prevent not only the hearing of it, but understanding it and faithfully applying it. Help me to faithfully proclaim it for your glory tonight, for the good of your people, and again, for the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Enoch was a descendant 
of Seth, the son of Adam. And interestingly enough, as we'll see in just a moment, in the genealogy, he is the seventh. Including Adam, he was the seventh. Now, without getting into any sidebars or any rabbit trails, it is interesting to note that he was the seventh and such an unusual thing happened to the one who was the seventh in the line that would eventually bear the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of his people. And we know that the number seven is God's number. We know that from the book of Revelation and elsewhere. I'm not going to get into that tonight, as I said, and get on to a rabbit trail other than to make note of that and find it's very interesting. Do turn with me, though, if you would, over to Luke chapter 3. Kind of keep your finger in Hebrews 11. We'll be back shortly. But turn with me to Luke chapter 3, and we'll look at the genealogy there. It's very interesting. That includes Enoch. Luke 3. The whole genealogy is actually in verses 23 to 38, but we're just going to look for the sake of time tonight, at verses 37 and 38. Now this is the genealogy of Mary, actually, her side of the family. And you say, well, Mary's not mentioned. Well, as you might notice, in all the genealogies, the ladies are not mentioned. That's not the way the genealogies were given. Joseph is mentioned here, but these are, this is not Joseph's family. Joseph is simply mes, mes, mentioned as the one who was supposed to be the father of Jesus. But notice there in verses 37 and 38. We pick up where it says, The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, we don't have a large amount of information in Scripture about Enoch. We do, however, have enough to tell us who he was and why he's here mentioned. And we start with that, again, by going back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. We find out some interesting things about Enoch. Now, you may be wondering again, why are we doing all this? Why go back and find out all this information about Enoch and who he is, what he did when he was here on the earth? Well, I want to remind you again something I've mentioned before, and that's the Hebrew Christians were very familiar with it. They'd been taught well the Old Testament. They knew who Enoch was. They knew where he came from. They knew what, basically what the scriptures taught about him. So if we're going to bring ourselves kind of up to speed in the place where they were, or at least to some extent, we need to go back and review that information. So look with me here at Genesis 5, and I'm going to start at verse 15, and I'm going to read down through verse 24. The scriptures say Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years, and he be and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 300 and 65 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The scriptures here tell us that Enoch was a, born to a man named Jared. 
We know very little about his father apart from the line he is in. And the scripture tells us here he was the second longest living man at 962 years. That being the case, he lived well into the lifetime of Noah. So it's very possible, matter of fact, probably very likely, that Noah knew Enoch's father, Jared. And his long life may very possibly, though we're not told for sure, but it may be an indication that Jared was a godly man, loved God, and loved his word, though we don't have really any details about him. Also, as we know, Methuselah, his son, lived 969 years and was the longest living man recorded in Scripture. Now, as we stop and think about that, that's interesting. For one man to be related to the two men who lived longest, as far as we know ever, on the face of the earth. Enoch, his father, and his son. And again, in the case of his son, it may be an indication that he was a godly young man, that he loved God and was faithful to him. In contrast to his father, however, and son, Enoch only lived, I say only, 365 years. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I try to get my mind around those number of years that those men lived, 962, 969, 365, that kind of boggles my mind. I have trouble getting past 70 or 75 in, in my mind when I start, can you imagine, living almost a millennium? That, I just can't, I have run out of things to do, uh, I think. Obviously, they didn't, but it, it, it has a, it's hard for us to comprehend that, that amount of time. And yet, Scripture speaks of Enoch only living in comparison to his father and his son only a little over a third of the, the amount of time that they did. Now, one other place in Scripture tells us a little bit about Enoch. We get a little bit of a glimpse of, of who he was. And that's if we turn back to the second to the last book in the Bible, the book of Jude. We turn back there to the book of Jude, and we actually find a little bit of information about Enoch and who he was. Jude, and if we look in verses 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15 of the book of Jude. Jude wrote, it was also about these men that Enoch, Enoch was preaching about false prophets and related things. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, interesting that he makes a point of that, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude's telling us here that Enoch preached what? He preached about the coming judgment. He preached about the final judgment. Interesting. Here we have Enoch, only the seventh in the line from Adam, preaching about the final judgment. We haven't, Noah hasn't come on the scene yet. Moses hasn't come on the scene yet. David hasn't come on the scene yet. And here we have Enoch preaching on the coming judgment of men. And God coming again to judge men for their evil and their sin. And undoubtedly with this, Enoch probably preached about the coming Messiah to the degree that he understood that and knew that from Genesis 3.15. And also he undoubtedly suffered 
and endured the persecution, hardship, that result, and hardship that resulted from his faithful preaching. Yet he remained faithful to the Lord and the truth God had given him to proclaim. So that kind of gives us a little, a little synopsis about Enoch. Who was Enoch? Enoch was a, a godly man. He loved the Lord. He faithfully proclaimed his truth. He endured the persecution and hardship that came with that faithful proclamation and living according to God's word. And then what about his death? And it's interesting with Enoch, we have to put death in quotes. Because really, Enoch didn't die. Enoch is one of only two men in scriptures that did not die. God removed him from the earth and took him up to be with himself. And as we know and are familiar with from scripture, only one other man has been recorded for us that that happened to, the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we have the record of Elijah, and I won't go back there tonight for sake of time, but we have the record of Elijah. And what happened is Elisha accompanied him and was following him and was preparing to take over for him, all of a sudden, out of heaven, comes what? The fiery chariot to take Elijah home. And Elijah disappears in the fiery chariot with Elisha there as the witness and testimony of what takes place and goes home without dying to be with the Lord. Now, in Enoch's case, we don't have even the details that we have in Elijah's case. No details are given us of Enoch's being taken up to be with the Lord. Now, verse 5, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, go back with me there, if you would. If you're not already back there in Hebrews 11, it does give us a little interesting bit of information related to that. Note what the writer says here, again in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. The scripture tells us here that it was by faith that Enoch was taken up to be with God. Of course, the writer's not telling us that Enoch earned it in any way. That's not what he's saying. But he's telling us what? Because of Enoch's faith, because he had been a faithful man, because he loved God and his word, and been faithful in proclaiming that word, God took him up to be with him. The writer says he obtained the witness before his being taken up that he was pleasing to God. Now, again, that almost sounds like, well, is the writer telling us that he earned somehow earned this? That he earned God's favor in such a way that God took him to heaven because of that? Is that what happened? No, that's not what that's not what the writer's trying to tell us here. What he is trying to tell us is that he lived a life that glorified God. And he lived that life how? By faith. He lived for God and he lived by faith. He believed what God said was true and endured the hardship and tribulations for it. Now, we could say, well, how does the writer come to that conclusion? Was that just a special revelation he came to? Or was there another reason he came to that conclusion? Well, it's interesting. Note verse 6 here. Note what the writer says in verse 6. And let's reason from what he says to what he tells us about Enoch back in verse 5. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God 
must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Now, why could the writer say that Enoch, by faith, lived? And it was that that pleased God. What does he say here in verse 6? What do you have to have to please God? Faith, right? The writer says it was by faith because that's, without faith you can't please God. You have to have faith if you're going to please God. You have to believe what God has said. You have to believe what he has promised. You have to believe the gospel. If you don't believe that, you can't please God. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how often you go out and pass out tracts. Those are all good things. But unless they're done in faith, they don't please God. The writer here is telling us, what about Enoch? How do we know he pleased God? And why do I make that statement? Because I know that without faith, he couldn't have done it. Because to please God, you have to have faith. I want to quote here from Dr. Robert Martin on his, from his commentary on Hebrews. You may or may not be familiar with Dr. Martin. He was a Reformed Baptist pastor for many years in Seattle, Washington. Before that, taught it out in New Jersey at Trinity Ministerial Academy. Had the privilege of knowing our brother very well before he went home to be with the Lord. But he has this to say related to Enoch and his faith. Enoch acted this way because he had a confident assurance concerning things hoped for, a persuasion concerning realities not seen. In the language of Hebrews 11.27, Enoch endured as seeing him who is invisible. For this reason, God was well pleased with him. And as reward for his faithfulness, God, in his time and way, sovereignly took Enoch out of the world, this world of hope and faith and persecution, translating him into the world of fulfilled promise and sight. Enoch lived by faith. And again, that's amazing if we think about it, brethren. Think again of the time frame he's in. Think of the amount of revelation that they had, very little if any, except what he got directly from God. There was no scripture, there was no Bible to pick up and study, along with a whole study full of commentaries and all the rest. He didn't have any of that. And yet he faithfully preached about the coming judgment. He faithfully preached about what God was going to do for his people who were faithful to him. The writer continues in verse 6 by giving us as I mentioned a moment ago, the two fundamental parts of faith. You notice there what he tells us. Without faith, again, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must, first of all, what? Believe that he is. Now, obviously, a failure to believe in the God of the Bible is going to be a problem. You don't believe in the God of the Bible, how can you go to him? How can you look to him for anything if you don't even believe in him? Also, what about sometimes people, not only do they not believe in God, but sometimes they'll believe in a God of their own making. They make up their own concepts. And I hear you're Heard some good preaching on that this morning about God and who he is, partly of who he is. And that's crucial, brethren, that we always have a good concept of what the scriptures teach about who he is. Why? 
if we don't have a good concept of who God is, we could find ourselves believing in a different God. We could find ourselves believing in a God who is nothing but a Santa Claus, right? And he hands out candy freely to all who come. We could find ourselves believing in a God who's harsh. And every time we make a false move, he comes down hard on us with both feet. Those aren't, that's not, neither of those are who the God of the Bible is. We need to know who the God of the Bible is. If we're going to have biblical faith. Now, interestingly enough, you notice here that the writer doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't stop by saying, okay, if you believe in God, no. No, believing in God, that's, that's not enough. As a matter of fact, we know that from James 2.19, when James is talking also about faith, and when he's trying to say, oh yeah, you, you have faith without works, show me your faith without, my work, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he goes on to make an interesting statement. You believe in God, you do well. You know who else believes in God? The demons, and they tremble. Oh, the demons believe in God. You can be sure to that. And they shake and they fear because they know the coming judgment. They know it's going to come upon them. But James says, and so does the writer here to Hebrews, no, that's not enough. The writer here tells us there's a second thing in believing, in having biblical faith that you also must have. And that's that you must believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, if we believe God's a rewarder of those who seek him, what are we saying about God? Immediately what goes when somebody, if somebody gives you a reward for something, God is a rewarder of those who diligently, what do you think about that person? Or what do we think about God? First of all, it may mean that God is, it tells us about God that he's, he's fair. It tells us about God that he is willing and does do good to men. It tells us what about God? That when we do as God asks us to do, he's not harsh and just says, well, yeah, that's what you should have done. No, that's not what God does at all. God loves his people. He he does them good when they follow him. And ultimately, what? What is ultimately going to be the reward of God's people? If they persevere. Their vindication. Their seeing of their Savior. They're living in a new heaven and a new earth that just is beyond anything we can imagine. All those things God has promised to reward his people with. So the writer says you have to come and believe, A, that God exists, and B, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Without those two foundational fundamental things, your faith is not biblical. Again, let me quote from Dr. Martin as he comments on this and makes an excellent comment on it. Just very short. He said, it is a faith that embraces all that God has revealed about himself, about our duty to seek him, and about the reward he promises to those who do so. That is a biblical faith. Now, what about Enoch? Let's go back to Enoch a minute. What about his faith here? What can can we say about his faith that we can learn from. Well, Scripture gives us one last thing about his life. And this is a very interesting, I found this very encouraging in many ways and very interesting about what Scripture tells us. Go back again with me 
to Genesis chapter 5. You may have seen this when I read this the first time in Genesis chapter 5. And I want to point out two things two things from verses 22 and 24 that scripture says here about Enoch. Verse 22 reads, Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. And then down in verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, or God took him. Now, do you notice what it says in both of those verses about Enoch? What does it say about him? Enoch walked with God. And now it would be a very encouraging thing if someone said about me, he walked with God for 300 years. Well, that would be a, number one, that would be a very, very encouraging thing. Because what, what is the scripture saying here? Well, before we say exactly what that means, let's look at something else. Do you know that this is only mentioned, used two other times in the whole book of Genesis after this? Once in reference to Noah, once in reference to Abraham. Noah, over one chapter, in chapter 6, verse 9, notice what it says. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. And then notice what it says in Genesis 17.1. Genesis 17.1, interestingly enough, now it's God speaking himself about Abraham. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, what do you notice about both of these scripture references in Genesis 6 and Genesis 17? What is that walking with God connected to? Is it connected to how they physically went around getting from place to place? Is that, what he's, is that what's being talked about here? No. In chapter 6, it's very clear in verse 9 that it's connected to what? It's connected to Noah's spiritual state, right? It says there, Lord, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. It's talking about how Noah was related to God. He walked with God. He loved God. And as the scripture says there, he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And what about Abram? There in Genesis 17, what is God saying? God connects it to, again, to his spiritual state. He wasn't again talking about how physically Abraham Abram got around. He was talking about spiritually. Abram, I want you to walk before me in a godly way, blameless. Now, this is the same word that's applied to Enoch back in verses 22 and 24 of chapter 5. What does it tell us about Enoch? He was a man who walked with God. It speaks of him as being, what, a righteous man, a blameless man in God's sight. Not perfect or sinless, but seeking to be faithful by putting to death sin and living for God. Enoch believed in God and what he revealed, resulting in his obedience. He walked with God again for at least, we're told, at least 300 years. Amazing. And maybe gives us a glimpse, a 
of why God chooses to put him in what Brother Ken rightfully referred to as the Hall of Faith fame, the Hall of Faith and being famous. Why did God choose Enoch? Because he was a man who walked with God. And God wants us to imitate his faith. He wants us to be like Enoch. You remember last time I was here, we saw Abel. You remember Abel? We saw Abel. And what did Abel do? Abel stood for the truth. Even when his older brother was putting the pressure on him, eventually to the point of putting him to death, and yet he stood faithful. He didn't back down from what he knew God wanted him to do. And now here we have Enoch. Here we have Enoch being talked about for the first time any man, it being referenced after the fall of him walking with God. Enoch walked with God. So our first lesson or application tonight is we need brethren to ask God to help us to be like Enoch. Teach us, help us, Lord, to know what does it mean to walk with God, for me to walk with God, and help me to walk with God. Imitate his faith. That's what the writer wants us to do. Now, does that mean we have to be exactly like Enoch? No, because in some ways that's almost impossible. That's a man who lived probably 5,000 or more years ago. And number one, the amount that we know is far more than what he knew. So what we need to live up to is a whole lot more than what he needed to live up to. What he understood was far less than we. So there's, there are differences. We don't, no, we don't need to be like, in one sense, we don't need to be like him. And yet, in another sense, we need to be exactly like him. And how is that? Well, just like Dr. Martin said, we need to believe what? Everything God has revealed to us is what our duty is before him and what he has promised to do for us, not only in salvation, but when our Savior comes again. We need to believe all those things. And in that way, we need to imitate Enoch because that's what he did. He believed what God had revealed to him to that point about the coming judgment, about men and their evil and their sin. Now, there was no law, remember, brethren, then. There were no Ten Commandments. There was nothing that Enoch could go through and just said, well, here, here you go, folks, here it is. Boom, 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 what God said. He didn't have any of that. He preached God's truth as God gave it to him, Faithfully, trusting that God would simply open the minds and hearts of people to understand it and believe it. There was no written word at that time. But like Enoch, we need, brethren, to put our faith in this right here. This is it. And I say this reverently, come hell or high water, this is it. We never move from this right here. No matter what comes our way, no matter what God may choose to bring our way, and it may be difficult. There may be hard times. God is, as we saw last time from Abel, following Christ is not a bed of roses. We don't believe in the prosperity gospel, quote unquote. That once you believe in Christ, everything from then on in is just a skate. Jesus didn't teach that, brethren. He never said that. And as a matter of fact, he made it very clear just the opposite, that to follow him is costly. Very, very costly. And, cost, and will cost us dearly to be faithful to him and to be his servants. So we must live like Enoch up to the knowledge of God that we've been given in order to walk with God and persevere to the end. Secondly, the thing we want to learn tonight from Enoch that's taught us here, both from him and from verse 6 there in Hebrews chapter 11, is that 
we as God's people can please God. Did you know that? Yes, we can please God. You'd say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor Matt? I'm talking about in Christ. Do you know what? Brethren, we can please God. We can get his smile. The Father smiles on us as his people as we obey him in Christ and believe what he's revealed to us. That is possible. You say, well, well, that's not such a big thing. Well, you know, brethren, I wish it wasn't such a big thing. But you don't have to go very far to find people who profess to be Christians that think Christians can't please God. You know that? You have go back up to Grand Rapids, and it doesn't take very far, but you can find a denomination that preaches it's very hard, if not impossible, for God's people to please him. I'm sorry, my Bible doesn't read that way. My Bible says I can please my Heavenly Father. And God's people, and that should encourage us, it should encourage us, brethren, it should encourage us to want to, what, obey him, to want to follow him. Why? Like the prodigal son's father, what's he do? When the son comes home, does he say, yeah, it's about time you got back here. Where have you been? That's not what he did, was it? He embraced his son. Slay the fattened calf. Let's have a party. He's home. Let's get excited. Why? He loved. He loved his son. And he loves us as his people. And we can please him. And he's thrilled with that. We can please him. And that should excite us. It should encourage us. It should motivate us, brethren, to follow him and obey him. Yes, I understand Enoch was a prophet of God. But because he was a prophet of God doesn't make him any different than us. He was a man who was born in sin. He was a man who was saved by faith. He was a man who loved God and followed all his ways. You know what? As far as I know, he had five fingers on each hand and five toes on each foot. He wasn't any different than we are, brethren. And if anything, we have it better than him with the, with the additional revelation we have now. And let me ask this question before we move on to the next lesson. If we don't think we can please God as God's people, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us growing in grace? Where does that leave us telling other people about God and his word? Very excited, very willing, very encouraged? No. When we get ourselves into a frame of mind which we can, and which the evil one can, can tempt us to think that we can't please God, you know what goes on, goes spiraling down with that? Our willingness to tell others about Christ, our excitement about living for him, all that kind of begins to dissipate if we think we can't please God. It's an important thing that we understand and realize that we can please God. And we do please God in Christ. Now thirdly, as I mentioned earlier, here in this chapter what? We have the basics of biblical faith. The Bible gives us a very clear picture what, of who God is and what he requires of us. No question. So what does that imply to continue to strengthen our faith? What do we need to do? What do we need to learn? What do we need to read? What do we need to hear come and proclaim faithfully on a regular basis? When there's when there's Bible studies and book studies going on, where do we need to be, if at all possible? We need to be in God's word. If we expect to be people of faith and never crack our Bibles, brethren, you're sadly mistaken. That's not going to happen. And you're going to struggle severely. And you're going to wonder, what's the matter with me? Why can't, why do I do this? Well, maybe it's because 
They're not in God's word. And you don't know who God really is. You're not learning who he is. And you're not learning what he requires of us. You're not learning what he's promised us. We need to do that on a regular basis, brethren, so that we might strengthen our faith. We need to be reminded of what he's promised us. How easy is it to forget of what God's promised his people in the days to come? Is that easy to forget sometimes? That God has promised us he's coming back, Christ is going to come back, he's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to vindicate his people, judge the wicked, and he's going to take this world, burn it to a crisp, as it were, and build a new one just for his people. And in that new heavens and new earth, there's going to be no sin, no pain, no crying. Sometimes you wonder if that's even real. Could there be such a place? Will there be such a place? There will. There will be such a place. But how easy is that to forget if I don't open my Bible and I continue to experience all that goes around me, on around me in this world? I go to work and I hear what goes on there and all the people, unconverted people and everything related there. And I go out here to the neighborhood or I go out to the store or all the places we come in contact with the world. And I get world, 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 world coming at me from all directions. And I don't open my Bible. What can we expect? A strong faith? A growing faith? No. No, we can't. We need, we need, brethren, to be in God's word. Fourthly, something else that comes out in this passage and we see it as we go back to compare the Old Testament passages related to Enoch, is that salvation has always been and will always be by faith in Christ alone. And that, brethren, never changes. And it has not changed since Adam fell to today. Well, you say they didn't know about Christ. No, but they knew about the promise. Genesis 3.15. And they believed in the coming promise. It's always been by faith. Enoch, it doesn't say what? Enoch by works? Does it say Enoch by works? Oh, Enoch, you were, matter of fact, Enoch, you weren't even in the old covenant. You were even before that. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says by faith. Men have always been saved by faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That has always been, and it always will be, until he comes again. So that's something we also see here. Something else we see here that Dr. Martin actually pointed out in the first quote that I gave tonight from him is the sovereignty of God in blessing his people. How many people, again, did we say have not experienced death? Two. Recorded in Scripture. As far as we know, no other men in the history of mankind have never experienced death. Does God have a right to decide who that's going to be and who's not going to be? I mean, does that mean that Elijah or Enoch were some kind of super saints? They must have been way up here. Way, way up here. No, no. God sovereignly blesses his people in the way he chooses. He may choose to bless this brother this way and not bless this brother that way. Does that mean anything about the two men? Not necessarily. God can bless men and does bless men in the way he chooses, when he chooses, and in the way he chooses. And we see that here with Enoch and his life and with Elijah. And one last thing I want to leave you with tonight, brethren, as we close. 
with this question, and then I'll answer it before I'm done. Are Enoch and Elijah the only two men that will ever, never see death? That's a trick question. No. How do I know that? What did, Jesus, what did the Apostle Paul tell us? What's going to happen when Christ returns? Are there going to be some of his people still here alive? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? The Thessalonians, they're worried about it. Oh man, some of them were so worried about it, they quit working and were sitting on top of the mountain waiting for Jesus to come. Paul had to go and say, hey, wait a minute. No work, no eat, guys. Go back to work. You won't miss it when Christ comes, believe me. You won't miss it. But he tells them in in verses 13 to 17, very familiar passage in there. And I'm going to start at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Now, the Thessalonians were first worried about those who died. What's going to happen to those people? Paul's saying, don't worry about them. God's going to raise them from the dead. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And we see Paul saying something similar in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. He also says in there that there are going to be some of us that are still alive that are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant. There are going to be more one day who will not experience death. Those who remain faithful to the end that are still alive When Christ returns, they also will have the delight of not experiencing death. That's Enoch tonight. Enoch, that very unfamiliar Old Testament man before the patriarchs has much to teach us and may God help us to imitate his faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your love to us tonight and all your blessings to us. We thank you for Enoch and how you've put him before us to learn from him, to learn, Father, to believe what you've revealed to us, to live according to what you've shown us, and to look forward to the day when our Savior returns to fulfill all that he's promised us. Strengthen our faith, we ask tonight, for your glory, for our good. Might we be a shining light for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.